Hey, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. We help you build a thriving creative career. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. You can stay up to date with all things Creative Pep Talk by following me on Instagram at Andy J. Pizza. Let's get into today's episode. So we got our first factor meals and I am pumped to tell you about them. First off, we absolutely loved them. Delicious chef's kiss for the chef crafted dietitian approved meals that come straight to your door. I can definitely see how when deadlines are out of control or you're in a super busy season, how factor meals can lighten your load while still giving you options like veggie, vegan, and even low calorie. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can even pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Head to factormeals.com slash peptalk50 and use code peptalk50 to get 50% off. That's code peptalk50 at factormeals.com slash peptalk50 to get 50% off. All right, if you don't know, this episode is monumental. Uh, If you've listened to this show at all, you know that pretty much three or four times an episode, I say, well, Seth Godin said, because I am a super fan of Seth Godin, he is as legit as it comes when it comes to marketing uh, and doing work that matters. He has a tre- has had a tremendous impact on my illustration career, on this podcast. Uh, the things that I learned from him about marketing probably saved my illustration career years and years ago. And uh, I was so honored to have him on the show. He has a new book out called This Is Marketing. It's kind of like his manifesto. I feel like like his best ideas are all packaged into this one book. If you want a book to get started on thinking about, acting on how to get your work out there, how to get a, an audience that deeply connects with what you do and how to make stuff that deeply connects, get this book. It's called This Is Marketing by Seth Godin. If you search Seth in Google, he, his blog will be the first one that comes up. Go read it. You will not regret it. Without further ado, here is the man, the legend, Seth Godin. I'll save all of my uh, insane levels of fanboying and uh, <laughs> I'll record those in the uh, intro. But everybody that listens to this show knows that I'm a humongous fan and knows how exciting I would be for to do this interview. So thank you so much for being here, Seth. It's a privilege, sir. It's good to meet you. Okay. So I want to talk about your book, but before we jump right in there, I wanted to ask you a question that I've thought a lot about ever since I had discovered your work. And it's this, uh, your late mentor, Zig Ziglar was a motivational speaker and sales expert. And he had a, so he had a different title than you, but he seemed like he was doing a pretty similar thing. You call yourself a marketer. Is there something deeper going on under these signs slash terms? Oh, definitely. Um, I think that in the 60s and 70s when Zig was at his peak, people had a perception of what a salesperson did. And Zig went hard against that. And 
in the aughts and the teens that where we live now, people have a perception of what marketers do. And I am trying to broaden it as well. I call myself a marketer because I'm trying to make a point that anyone who wants to make a change happen, who wants to cause the way a human being sees or believes or acts is a marketer. That's what marketing is. And so to reserve the term marketing just for scammy, short-term, narcissistic, selfish people is wrong. And if you are a creative, if you are a leader, you're a marketer. And embracing that will make it likely you'll do it better. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, I, that clears it up. And, I, and it's really uh, an interesting place to start because I do think that's a question that a lot of people that interview you ask you is why marketing and, and what, what's the point? And I think that is just a really eloquent way of summarizing that. So what were you hoping to achieve with this new book, This Is Marketing? Why this book? Why now? Well, you know, every creative does projects. And I don't wake up in the morning thinking I need to write a new book. And I don't write books to make a living. So the, if I'm going to do a book, it's part of a continuum. My project is that I'm a teacher. My project is I'm trying to find people who want to level up in a certain direction. I want to turn on lights for them, open doors for them, and help them see how they could accomplish what they seek to do. And it was time to write this book because 20 or 30 years after the revolution began, and I've been narrating it for a very long time, this is a good moment to put a pin in it and say, this, this is marketing. Here it all is in one place because I'm tired of people who read Kotler as a textbook. I'm tired of people who think that spam on Facebook or the hustle by email is marketing because it's not. That's something else. I'm reclaiming this work that we're capable of doing. Right. It almost seems like uh, one part manifesto from you and one part rebrand and uh, how people are perceiving marketing. Well, you know, 6,600 people have taken the marketing seminar and those people didn't need a rebrand. Right. Uh, those 6,600 people wanted to know how to do it better and it worked. And so this is sort of the textbook for that seminar. It says, here are the basic principles of how human beings operate and here are how, if you have work that will make things better, you can use those principles to engage with the people you seek to serve to help them level up. And sometimes it feels like you're selling marketing to the good guys because the bad guys are already sold. Yep. There Is you that go. Right? That would yeah. be a great subtitle. I'm not sure it would sell any books, but it's... <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, okay. So... What is the biggest paradigm shift that you think people need to make when it comes to marketing? Uh, marketing in 2018 and 2019. Instead of seeking the largest possible audience, instead of dumbing your stuff down and working for the center, you should seek the smallest viable audience, the smallest audience you can live with. And smarten your stuff up, don't dumb it down. Figure out how to make it the thing that that tiny group of people can't live without that if you can make it that good, they will find you and they will tell their friends. So uh, can you, sp I love the idea of the smallest viable mar uh, market and I, 
our smallest viable audience. Can you kind of extrapolate on that? Because I think it's such a giant paradigm shift from, especially for creators who were brought up in an era of kind of the, the worship of the mass market success. Could you just explain a little bit about how that works and what it means to shoot for the smallest viable audience? Well, it's pretty straightforward. If we think of any successful marketing effort of the last 10 years, any of them, they have followed this rule. So Airbnb, which is the biggest hotel chain in the world, did not set out to be the biggest hotel chain in the world. They set out to serve a certain kind of person who was going to a conference in Austin, Texas, um, that the Lady Gaga did not set out to become a giant in the pop world. She was way out on the fringes of people who were looking for, you know, an artist who was going to wear meat. Mm. Um, that when we think about best-selling books, most best-selling records, even a play like Hamilton, they exist for a tiny, tiny group of people. And today, a mega hit might reach 3 million people. That's a mega hit. Like Mad Men had one or two million people watching every episode. Maybe yeah. three million people have seen Hamilton. That's one out of a hundred Americans have seen Hamilton. And it's a mega hit. It's enough. Mm. You're not going to be Walter Cronkite and you're not going to be Andy Warhol. Those slots are taken or gone. And what you do have a chance to do is matter to some people. What can you tell us about, if anything else, about how to embed layers into your work to resonate with that small group of people? What kind of questions, thoughts, tactics can we be using to deeper, more deeply resonate with the people that we want to connect to? Well, it has to begin with ignoring the people you don't want to connect to, mm. right? So Frank Lloyd Wright designs the Guggenheim. And when he designs it, the curator at the time, or the, the, the woman who was on the board of trustees, was a fan. And she's egging him on. But then she leaves, and the new curator takes over. He hates the building. He hates Frank Lloyd Wright. Artists organize and boycott the Future Museum, writing letters, pointing out that it is an offense to their art. And so only someone with the confidence of right could have said, why don't show your art here. I'm going to build it anyway. Yeah. And, and that is the work of a creative. We are not reverse engineering focus groups for the masses. We're saying here, I made this and we are very specific about who it's for and what's it for. And we are ignoring everyone else. Yeah. Oh, that's great. You, you say in the book that there's a misconception that, that marketing is advertising. Can you, ex if, if that's not true, can you explain to my audience the difference between marketing and advertising? Okay, so in 1968, if you want to get rich, here's what you do. You make average stuff for average people, and then you spend every penny you can on ads. Because every time you buy an ad for 100 bucks, you make $110 in profit. Because advertising is underpriced. It's an insane bargain. Mm. You can interrupt the masses for cheaper than it's worth. And the masses will go to a big store and buy what you sell. And then you have enough money to do it again. That is a really powerful math. 
That math was true for 80 years. That's irresistible. That's Jello. That's Heinz ketchup. That's yeah. trouble with Popomatic, right? Well, so for 80 years, of course, it shapes our culture. Of course, it teaches us that what we need to do is interrupt strangers, average strangers, uh, by saying, here's our average product at a slightly better price, come buy it. But in the last 20 years, it broke. It broke, seriously broke. And marketing is not that anymore. The formula doesn't work. Marketing is what we make, how we make it, how we answer the phone, who we sell it to, how much we sell it for, what the downstream is like, what our organization is like, how we design the next thing. These are marketing questions, and advertising doesn't enter into it at all. Yeah. That, yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, so what would you say to an artist that I find when I'm working with artists and working with uh, creators that there is a real knee-jerk reaction or a gag reflex when it comes to marketing or the idea of marketing or, or whatever. Uh, and what would you say to, the, to this person that believes that they should succeed on the merit of their work alone and shouldn't concern themselves whatsoever with their audience or uh, marketing in any way? Well, help me understand a couple words here. You use the word artist and you use the word succeed. Right. What do you, what do you mean by those words? So those are, t those are tough questions. So my, my podcast is about creative careers, trying to thrive in kind of two endeavors at the same time, which is obviously a tricky... This is why I have hundreds of hours talking about this because it's such a tricky... Uh, such a, such a tricky tightrope to walk where you're trying to earn a living making art and thrive financially and also... Right, but you just used the word art again. What, what do right. you mean when you say art? What do I mean art? Okay. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great question. I, I guess I have an idea of it. It's, it definitely has to do with your work that you make through creativity so it's a sculpture or a painting kind of no thing? it doesn't have to be that I, I at least on this podcast how i view it i'm talking to writers create what would be considered creative professionals writers authors musicians illustrators designers okay um, so these are mostly people who are on their own they're not someone yes. who got a job at ogilvy thinking that it will let them be a creative person yes okay. yes mostly second, freelancers second question then is when they say the word succeed, do they mean rich, famous? What do they mean when they say succeed? So at least what the way that I define it is, is uh, I'm, I'm not talking so much about fame or uh, glory. Uh, I'm usually talking about it in terms of comfortably, comfortable financially, and also making work that matters, making an impact. So impact over glory. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So here's, let me pick a couple uh, strong person examples and talk you through them. Yeah. The graphic artist, oil painter, sculptor, who says, I want to be able to do my work without regard for who it's for, is also staying up all night hoping that Leo Castelli's heirs find them. Right. They're hoping they will be in a gallery. Well, why was that going to happen? Is it going to happen because 
you're just lucky or is it going to happen because you have some level of intent and understanding of what they fear, what they dream of, what they desire, because it's arrogant to expect that other human beings will care about you when you refuse to care about them. Yes. Right. So let's get past that. And, you know, if, if, when the story of Bruce Nauman is, I think, instructive here. So he has a full floor at MoMA this week. Mm. And he's just been, he gets lucky and lucky and lucky in the 60s and the 70s. Showed up at the right school at the right time. Someone who knew, someone knew that. And he was one of Castelli's first picks, right? And there are some pieces of art he's done that have resonated with me. And I am one of his target customers, but he doesn't have a target. But basically, he's a wandering generality who has some interesting things to say and happened to be in the right place at the right time. And now at the age of 70-something, he's at MoMA. Yeah. And good for him because I wouldn't have had the guts to stick it out for those 50 years. Yep. But why wander when you can be really clear that your goal is to be seen by a certain kind of person who dreams of a certain kind of interaction and who aspires to be touched in a certain way? Why wouldn't you want to do that? Mm. Why are you so disrespectful of your art that you're not willing to acknowledge that it's for someone? Yes. Okay. So if your art is for someone, then when you are creating your art, if you're writing a play to be on the Broadway stage, you need to think about what does the person who picks plays for the Broadway stage fear? What do they dream of? What are their hopes and desires. Because if what you are writing doesn't match that, then they're not going to call you and they're not going to pick you and you will never be on the Broadway stage. So I am not saying you should dumb down your work. I'm asking you to bring generosity to your work. The generosity that says, I am in touch with the muse. I am willing to sacrifice so much to make my art. But while I'm at it, I'm going to make art that has empathy to it. The practical empathy of realizing the people I seek to serve don't know what I know, don't even want what I want, don't believe what I believe, but still want what I made. And too often, the person who says they're an artist is actually simply hiding and likes the fact that they are a failing artist. Because if they want to be a successful artist, they will adopt the discipline of saying, I'm doing this for someone. So Abby Ryan paints and oil painting every day. And she's been uh, featured in Oprah Magazine. She makes a fine six-figure living painting beautiful uh, post-realistic small still lifes out of her home, I think, somewhere in Pennsylvania. And the commitment to say, I'm going to make an oil painting every day. Then I'm going to sell those oil paintings without a gallery. And I'm imagining what kind of person is going to buy them. It's not going to be one of the Satchis, right? Right. And because I know what kind of person is going to buy them, I know about how much money they're willing to spend, 600 to 1500 bucks, which is fine because I can make an oil painting every day. Yeah. And I know that those p- people want an artist they can root for. So I'll have a newsletter where I will be able to update them as to what I'm doing. And I know that those people want to know about my process because some of them want to be artists like me. So I will make a series of videos on an ongoing basis for years and years so they can become intimate with me and my process. 
Abby Ryan is a brilliant marketer who happens to be a successful painter. Mm-hmm. She makes her art on her terms without needing Mary Boone to know she exists and without dreaming that she'll get a floor at MoMA. Yeah. Right? Why wouldn't you want to be her instead of being the frustrated person who's just cursing the gods that aren't picking you? I don't understand that. And it's, yeah, I guess you kind of address this right from the get-go, the definition of art in, your, in the artist's mind. Because if your definition is purely, because I think there's maybe two different ways, if, I'm sure there's a million ways of looking at it, but two ways that are pretty prominent are art is purely for self-expression, whereas another way of looking at it is art is for connection. So if you're, you know... It, and self-expression almost feels like the first part of the equation to the connection, and it's missing a, a piece. Well, there's, that, nothing, right? there's nothing wrong with art as hobby. Sure. No, absolutely not. Right? And if you are the only person you are seeking to please and to change with your art, congratulations. Fantastic. That is a brilliant choice. Sure. Go do that. Do not corrupt it by then insisting that you get paid for it fairly, because you won't, and do not corrupt it by saying you need to be aware of anything else in the world. But here's the deal. If you are painting on canvas, you've already looked at the world, because you didn't invent painting on canvas. Mm. You have opted into a system that's been around for thousands of years because you wanted to fit in at some level, right? That that when Jeff Koons invests 30, 40, $50 million to create new technologies, he's not naive. He understands that to be an important, in capital letters, artist in 2019 means that a middleman, a curator, will pick him. And so he knows who his audience is. His audience is diametrically opposed to the tourist who points at something and says, I could have made that. Well, it's not for you. So, no, right? So I guess what I'm getting at is I've broadened the definition of art way more than most of the people who are listening to this. My definition is the act of a human doing something that might not work that's generous on behalf of someone else. Mm. So I think it's possible to do art in a retirement home within the way you interact with a patient. And I think it's possible to do art if you're doing customer service, because you're not reading the manual, you're not a cog in the system. You're going out to a place where other people don't have the guts to go. But if someone wants to do art in a visual realm or art in a tactile realm or art with music, I'm all for that. But as soon as you say, and I want to get paid for it, then you got to get past the entitlement thing and say, what value are you going to create for who? So I don't want to go down uh, a crazy side road, but I, it's just pure curiosity. <laughs> do, you, do you have any idea why the, the creative world has so much baggage in terms of kind of toxic mythology regarding what's art, what's not art, how you should be an artist? or it, It's almost like, uh, like a binary way of thinking like, there's, you know, there's sell, there's sell out, there's being pure. And, and it feel, I feel like often I'm, as someone who is trying to help creative people thrive, butting up against all of this, 
old mythology that has been accepted and, and developed over centuries. I don't know. Does that make sense? That question? Oh, totally. But it's not centuries. Um, Steve Pressfield, my friend, has written about resistance. I call it the resistance. I talk about that book on the on the show all the time. And so clearly, writer's block is fictional. It's invented by the resistance. Mm. Clearly, the idea that some people have that popularity or commerce is anathema is the work of the resistance. Mm. Because you can get around it super easy. Go sell insurance for 35 hours a week. And <laughs> that, and you know, if you turn off Facebook and your TV, that leaves you 50 hours a week to do your art. Go do your art, right? Stop whining and go do your art. But what happened in the year 1850 or so is we went from almost every artist being an amateur in their spare time doing their work mm. to this idea of the professional. And whether that's Van Gogh feeling like he's, you know, going down the toilet because he's not getting picked to Ernest Hemingway being a superstar. Mm. Commerce then shows up and because we industrialized and commercialized everything, we start to say, well, this person must be good because they're famous. But there's no correlation between good and famous. And if you think there is, then it's really easy to beat yourself up. And, um, I got to just share one of my favorite art stories. I know a lot of art stories because I grew up in a museum in Buffalo. My mom was the first woman on the board of the Albright Knox. And um, the question is, why is the Mona Lisa so famous? It's the most famous painting in the world. Uh, And the reason it's so famous is uh, about 105, 110 years ago, it got stolen. And when it got stolen, it was a minor painting. But it got stolen right when newspapers were coming into their own. And it was gone for two years. You ready for this? They arrested Pablo Picasso, thinking, thinking that he had stolen it as some sort of stunt. What? And so the Mona Lisa was on the front page of newspapers around the world for two years. And eventually they found it. The, the guy who stole it, who was a, an Italian guard at the Louvre, uh, brought it to the Uffizi because that's where he thought it belonged. And the people at the Uffizi uh, did several things. They turned him in. And they also put it on their walls for two weeks before they sent it back to France, which I thought was hysterical. Yeah, that's and, and then they, the Italians thought he was a hero, so they let him out on parole really fast. But the point is, the Mona Lisa is not the best painting in the world. It's just the most famous painting in the world. Yeah. And if you can't get over that, then you really have no business doing art. That's huge. I, I would say... Uh, I feel like the, I, I didn't know that whole story, but I always say, I feel like the Mona Lisa was basically posted on Instagram at the right moment. <laughs> there the you algorithm go. cat caught it. Yeah. So that, that's amazing. Uh, so, okay. So we have, like I said, we have filmmakers, actors, designers, musicians, all these different people. Um, just for sake of specificity, this is a hypothetical and, and feel free to kind of tear apart the premise uh, that's my specialty. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I know, know your work too well. Um, but, but, uh, even that we'll learn a ton from. So if you were an illustrator trying to work in the editorial illustration market, wanting to get hired by the New York times, what would you do on a tactical level? Here we go. If you're a freelancer, yeah. first, congratulations. It's great life. I'm a freelancer. Sure. Second, 
acknowledging it is the first step. The question then is, how do you move up as a freelancer? The answer is not by working more hours. Mm. You cannot work twice as many hours as you're currently working. And even if you did, you would not work up, move up twice as high. And even if you did, then you'd certainly be out of hours. So that's not the secret. The mm. secret is get better clients. Better clients challenge you to do better work. Better clients talk about your work. Better clients pay you better. Better clients uh, give you more work. Get yeah. better clients. Yep. How do you get better clients? Two steps. One, fire your bad clients. Walk away from your bad clients. The only way you're going to have time to get better clients is to get rid of your bad clients. You don't have to do it in one day, but you have to do it. And then the second thing is develop practical empathy for your good clients. Your good clients, the ones you don't have yet, they want something. They need something. They have fears and dreams and desires. You're not them. They're not you. But you can see who they are. You can guess or assert what they want and then discover what that might or might not be. And that is hard work, Yeah. right? If you go for the obvious ones, if you say, I want to be a cartoonist and I want to be published in the New Yorker as much as Bob Mankoff, well, you just pick the most crowded line to get in. True. Don't do that. There are other good clients. Pick a line that other cartoonists aren't in where you can be the big fish as opposed to just hoping to get picked. Yeah. And then the last part is be really clear with yourself about what better means. Better is not up to you. Better is up to them. If you're not getting picked, it's because you're not good enough by their standards. So you got to figure out how to get better by their standards and persistent in a generous way so that you get more at-bats, so you get picked. That's perfect. I, this, is a, this question kind of picks up uh, where you left that one. And it's kind of a reference to the drill bit idea in your book. Um, but it, one of the things I talk to artists a lot about is trying to understand, and you kind of talk, just spoke about this, but trying to understand why people buy art, why people buy the type of art that you want to make. Uh, and it's kind of a, it's a fuzzy, esoteric question, but I've found in my own uh, experience that the more I understand why people are trying to listen to this podcast or, you know, what do they really, really want on the bottom, behind all of the layers? Um, and so could you explain that, like, what you mean by what, uh, why people really buy something and apply that to art? Okay, so it's only useful to go down this path if we refuse to use the word people. Okay. Because there are no people, there are just right. individuals. Some individuals, the person who uh, bought that David Hockney or the Albert Einstein letter, are operating at the highest possible sphere of cash for status. Mm -hmm. Cash for status is a really seductive place to go if you can get there, right? So I sometimes make a living as a public speaker. There are people who are probably better than me at public speaking. But you can't get as much status from hiring this unknown person as you can get from hiring me. Because if you want to go to the people who are going to come to the conference and say, we got this person to get on a plane and come here, and ladies and gentlemen, yeah. then that's what you buy when you get me to come live. Because you can read my stuff for free. That's not what you're paying for. Mm. You're paying for cash for status. That's really different than uh, the woman who's 84 years old who has a Salvador Dali print over her piano. 
Mm. Right? She's not buying status. No. She's buying something else. She might be buying a memory of her husband who loved Salvador Dali. And so she's got finding solace in being able to see that thing. We have the issue of tension that some people will respond to. There's only one of these paintings in the whole world. Shepherd Fairy only made one. He's auctioning it off for charity. And if you don't bid, you're not going to own it ever. You want it or not? Right? So that tension causes someone to go forward. So we have, in the book, I talk about many of these ideas. I break them into little pieces. But the most important thing to realize is it's never everyone and it's never the same thing every time. Yeah. Yeah. That's really fantastic. I, I do think that, uh, and I think that goes into this idea of understanding what better is to those people right like that exactly yes that's perfect so okay i'm gonna this is kind of a miscellaneous group of questions that i've just been dying to ask you for years um one of them is regarding purple cow and here's my question and i can i can explain more on it if it doesn't if it's not obvious what i'm asking but why is it a purple cow and not a purple uh Conchplorum splat, some kind of alien. Why, uh, you know, why did I? You're saying why did I call the book Purple Cow? <laughs> no, more like why is the idea uh, not like you, you're saying it's a purple cow, not something purple that we've never seen before, something that's even crazier than a purple cow that is, you know never been seen. And I think you kind of talk about this a little bit with the idea of um, the silk uh, milk, Um, this idea of kind of fitting in before you stand out. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'll try. Here we go. Okay. Purple Cow is a book that says you can't talk at people anymore. The ideas go sideways from person to person. What do people talk about? They talk about something that's remarkable. What does it mean to be remarkable? The answer is worth making a remark about, meaning the person themselves made the decision and they benefit from having the conversation. Yeah. It's not up to you. It's up to them. Now, you're asking, I think, what makes it worth having the conversation? If aliens came down from planet 10, yeah, it's all we would talk about forever, for the rest of my life. It's all that would anyone would ever talk about. That would be remarkable. It would be a sure. stupid way to talk about it in the book, though, because you can't make one of those. <laughs> yeah, right? right. Yeah. On the other hand, when Jeff Koons did his pornography work with his ex-wife, if you were a certain kind of curator or a certain kind of art collector or a certain kind of journalist it was irresistible to talk about it mm. because it was the juxtaposition of bad boy, famous artist, the next step in what we were going to think of for contemporary art, a woman who was a member of parliament in Italy and his wife all rolled into one. Yeah. How could we not talk about that in a certain little tiny space? Right. Yeah. So, he didn't say, how do I make my balloon animals? I don't remember which came first. How do I make my balloon animals a little nicer? He said, how do I start a conversation? Yeah. And he stole that from Andy Warhol, but that's what Andy Warhol did. Andy Warhol's whole thing in contemporary art is, 
I will make art that people can't help but talk about because it makes them feel good to talk about it. Yeah. So what happened with Silk is, it's hard to remember these days, the refrigerated section at the supermarket used to just have milk in it. Whole milk, 2% milk, skim milk. That was it. Yep. So here's this other thing that's not milk in the section right next to the milk. So it's milk, 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 not milk. So the hard part was A, deciding to do that because it could have been shelf stable and B, persuading the supermarket to let you do it. Yeah. But once you did that and you could fix that last problem with cash, which is what they did. So once you're in there, now the consumer has something to talk about because the angry vegan can serve it and say, guess what? It's not milk. Or the person who's looking for new things in the supermarket and see and say, wait, 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 there's a pattern interrupt here. It yes. used to be milk, milk, milk. Now it's milk, 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 not milk. And so there are ways to do these system changes, but first you got to see it. Yep. And actually the word that really stands out there to me is, the, is juxtaposition. And one of the things that I end up kind of struggling to explain to creative people or getting them to um, figure out is just that, that you have to have a context. To create a focal point, you have to have a pattern first and then break it. Right. That, that whole, you know, it's attributed to Picasso. Who knows if it was actually him, the whole, you have to learn the rules before you break them. Uh -huh. um, and a lot of creative people come to the market with something that lacks context completely, basically silk milk and, you know, the granola bar section of the, of the grocery store. And it just becomes kind of white noise or so random or that it doesn't create a focal point. Um, does that make sense? So you're saying like, yeah. it's neither a pattern match nor a pattern interrupt. Yes. Right. So what, what's a pattern match? A pattern match is uh, let's take a book you've heard of and make a Broadway play out of it. We know how that concept. A pattern match is let's take a celebrity and put them in a Broadway play. We know that pattern. Pattern interrupt is we haven't heard from Aaron Sorkin on stage in 20 years. He's going to write the play. Oh, now we got something to talk about. Pattern interrupt, pattern match, all in one package. Yes, exactly that. Yeah, and I think there's something about that kind of toxic creative mythology is what I'd call it of like having to be so utterly original that you don't want to have even a context. These are the people that refuse to even choose a market, choose a context, have influences. And it seems like it really stops people's creative careers before they start. Oh, those people are hiding. The, the people who yes. say, I am so dramatically original you would not understand yeah <laughs> that's just uh, no that's not true they're just hiding yes it's a, it is a, i have thought you know the the kind of hyper subjective avant-garde is a is a great place to hide you, you you know in terms of being afraid to step up to the plate and, and i'm not saying all avant-garde work is that i'm just saying that at least for me at the beginning that was a simpler thing to do which was Oh, well, it's subjective and I'm doing something so original that you couldn't possibly judge it if you tried. Right. Well, but if we think about the transgressive artists that everyone 
I'm imagining respects, you know, what was happening at CBGB, what was Patty Smith doing, you know, go down the list. Those people didn't say that. Those people said, if you don't get the joke, fine, but at least there's a joke. Yes. At least there's a punchline. Yeah. Uh, so I want to respect your time and, uh, I, we got to wrap this up, but is there anything that you would, is there any paradigm shift, any last imparted wisdom that you want to share with creative people trying to thrive today? Um, people that maybe are in a wishy-washy, mediocre place where they make some stuff sometimes, they really wish they could do this for a living and, and, um, and do that, but they're, maybe they don't have the discipline or whatever. It's just kind of, I meet a lot of people that are in that zone of gray. Is there any last bit of wisdom that you want to leave them with? It might not be that you need more skill. It might be that you need to learn to see the world where you're trying to make an impact. And I think that if you can become a professional at that and commit your energy to it, it will leverage the blood, sweat, and tears you've already put into what you're making. That's, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Seth. I, it means the world to me. You're awesome. Thanks for doing it. I know it's not easy and that you're showing up on a regular basis. Keep making a ruckus. Man, after I had this conversation, I could not stop thinking about it, referencing it. Uh, he always shows up to play, but it was phenomenal. You know, I to try to pick his brain, I spent forever on these questions. I thought really deeply about what are the ways I can kind of uh, use this moment to learn from my own career and get as much for all of you, and he did not disappoint. I hope this impacts uh, years and years of your creative making and marketing. Thank you so much, Seth, for coming on the show. Don't forget to check out his book, This Is Marketing. You will not regret it. It is like, uh, it's a deep dive into, but it's, it's not, it's a deep dive, but it's, it is, it's, it's vision. It's not, it's not going to overwhelm you. It's going to, I think, change your perspective and your paradigm on marketing and help you get to a place where you can connect with your audience in a deep way. And so go check it out. This is marketing. Thank you so much, Seth. It was absolutely brilliant to have you on the show. If you love Creative Pep Talk and it's had an impact on your creative career, there are a few ways you can support the show. You can review the show on iTunes. You can back the podcast financially at patreon.com slash creative pep talk, or you can get some CPT merch at creativepeptalk.com slash shop. You can also access the first 100 episodes of the show and stay up to date when new shows drop by signing up to the newsletter at creativepeptalk.com. Thank you. Thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music. Thanks to Alex Sugg for editing this podcast and providing a beautiful soundtrack. Thanks to all of you for listening. Until we speak again, stay pepped up. Stay pepped up.